This is Matt Raymond at the Library of Congress. For the past nine years, book lovers of all ages have gathered in Washington, D.C. to celebrate reading at the Library of Congress's National Book Festival. This year, the Library is proud to commemorate a decade of words and wonder at the 10th Annual National Book Festival on September 25, 2010. President and Mrs. Obama are honorary chairs of the event, which provides D.C. locals and visitors from across the country and around the world the opportunity to see and meet their favorite authors, illustrators, and poets. The festival is free and open to the public. It's held between 3rd and 7th Streets from 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. rain or shine. And joining me now is Ken Follett, the renowned author whose novels have topped bestseller lists in the U.S. as well as internationally. His latest work, Fall of Giants, comes out on September 28th, just a few days after the National Book Festival. It's the first book of the Century Trilogy, a series that will chronicle 20th century history through the stories of five families. While some have deemed the, uh, the Century Trilogy to be Follett's most ambitious project to date, his prior work has been both prolific and wildly popular. He's perhaps most well-known for his novel Pillars of the Earth. Several of his books have been adapted for both the big and the small screens. Mr. Follett, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on the show. It's great to be here. And I'm excited to talk with you, and we have a lot to discuss. So uh, if I could just start out by asking about The uh, Fall of Giants and the Century Trilogy. Uh, the series spans the 20th century with Fall of Giants focusing on World War I and the Russian Revolution. Uh, what inspired you to build a series around historical events, and, and why focus on the 20th century? Well, I was very uh, thrilled by the reception for World Without End uh, from readers and, and publishers and bookseller, booksellers around the world. And I, I wanted to do another novel with the same kind of sweep and scope. Uh, but I didn't really want to do another medieval story immediately. You know, three years spent writing about the Middle Ages is enough for a while. And besides, I didn't really think that, it, that people loved World Without End just because it was about the Middle Ages. I think, I think they liked it because it's, uh, because it's a long, meaty novel uh, of a kind that isn't written very often nowadays that takes as its subject the whole society. And... Uh, so World Without End was about uh, medieval England in the throes of the Black Death. And I thought, well, what could I write that, what could I write about that would be as dramatic and as sweeping as that? And I thought of the 20th century. It's the most dramatic and violent century in the history of the human race. Mm. Uh, and it's also uh, the, the history of all of us. It's, I lived through half of the 20th century. Most of my readers will have all of my readers will have lived through some of the 20th century, and our fathers and mothers and our grandparents and great-grandparents lived through the rest. So, in a way, it's the story of all of us. So, I thought that, so that's what made me think, I wonder if I could write something that would tell the story of all of us. Now, we're the Library of Congress, and we're uh, a place for research, and a lot of authors do research here. What kind of research goes into a novel, a trilogy of this scope? Well, of course, the first thing to do is to read a great deal, and uh, that, that's a pleasure. Most authors like doing research because it's so much easier than writing. And uh, so uh, I, I very much in, enjoyed reading many, many history books about uh, the First World War and the Russian Revolution. And the third theme of Fall of Giants, which is 
feminism and the struggle for votes for women. Uh, I also use old maps. I, I, I find maps very helpful. I like to look at old photographs. I have a wonderful book called Before the Revolution, which consists of very good photographs of St. Petersburg before the revolution. And I find it very helpful to look at you know, the, 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 the vehicles, the buses, the coats people wore, the hats people wore, the, sh the stores, all this kind of thing uh, helps me to create atmosphere. But finally, in, you know, research is limited, and in the end, uh, I fall back on experts. All of my books are checked by experts before, the, before they're published. And in the case of Fall of Giants, I actually employed eight historians, believe it or not, eight different history professors to, to read the first draft and uh, check for errors. You mentioned the themes of feminism and suffrage, and it's been noted that a lot of your works uh, include strong female characters. Do you agree with that? And, and could you talk a little bit about how you develop those characters and what guides the choices you make about them? Yes, uh, it, it is often noted that uh, there are strong female characters in my books. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure why people uh, are, are surprised or think that that is in some way remarkable or noteworthy. Nobody asks me why I have strong male characters in my books. Uh, you need strong characters in popular novels because it's strong characters who do bold and risky things and get into trouble and that's where you get a story from. Um, and uh, I've uh, long written um, about women as much as about men um, simply because it seems to come naturally uh, to me. It's, uh, it, it seems odd, I think, um, to, it, w it would seem odd to write a novel that was just just about men or mainly about men, although in, in the past many novels were like that. Um, it, the, the women in my stories are strong and rebellious and feisty simply because uh, it's that kind of person who makes an impact on the world and who creates drama. Um, uh, all, through, all through history there have been women who rebelled against the role that was imposed upon them by society before feminism was invented, you know, even in, in the Middle Ages and so on, there were women who simply didn't like uh, what they were told about what they were, what they were, how they were supposed to be and how they were supposed to act and the role they were supposed to play in society, and they rebelled. And of course, those are the people that it's fun to write about and to read about. There is uh, a fraternity, or I think you could say even sorority, of uh, very popular authors, but there's a much smaller subset uh, of those who uh, have gotten on the bestseller list around the world. Why do you think your stories in particular resonate so strongly across national borders? Well, I think it has something to do with the fact that I'm not English. Uh, I, I, I come from Wales, a small country that was conquered by England, and um, so I have never really subscribed to a kind of to what seems to me to be a kind of gung ho patriotism. I've never really, I've never subscribed, you know, to the philosophy "my country right or wrong" or or, or "my country is the greatest." Um, uh, many British people, of course, think that 
Great Britain is the greatest country in the world, but uh, as a Welshman, I clearly have ambivalent feelings about that sort of thing. So, um, I, so I, I, I come at this from a somewhat detached point of view, and I think that detachment is part, at any rate, of what has enabled me to write stories that are enjoyed um, very much in the United States and in France and Germany, Spain and Italy and so on. I sometimes wonder, I sell a lot of books in Brazil, and I sometimes wonder, you know, what um, what Brazilians make of stories such as A Dangerous Fortune, which is about a family of Victorian bankers in London, uh, or something like A Place Called Freedom, which is about Scottish coal miners. Uh, I ask myself, I wonder what, I wonder what people for whom all these locations must be extraordinarily exotic. I wonder what they make of my books. But I suppose the answer is that the underlying passions um, of, you know, the fear and conflict and romance and so on uh, are common to everybody. Um, do you, when you begin writing, do you keep in mind sort of that international diversity and, and that international viewpoint, thinking about your audience, or does that just sort of come as an outgrowth of, of your writing? I think it sort of comes to me naturally. I never, I never really, I never really reached, I never reached for an international audience in the sense of, you know, trying to have always have one American character and one German character and so on. As it happens in Fall of Giants, I do, of course, have a German, uh, Russian, uh, American, and British. But uh, in my first successful book, Ivor Needle, for example, was a huge bestseller in the United States. There are no American characters in it, and none of it takes place in America. Most of it takes place in Scotland. So... Um, uh, I've never done that, and I, don't, so I sort of don't believe in it. I don't believe that the way to sell books to, let's say, a German audience is to put a German character in the story. I think people um, enjoy books and identify with characters for much, much more profound reasons than, than mere nationality. Uh Eye of the Needle, uh, released in 1978, in many respects, uh, your first big hit. How would you say that your earlier period in your writing career, how has how your writing career changed, I guess I would ask, from, from those days until now? Uh, well, I, uh, recently Paul McCartney was asked um, how he felt when he heard, listened to the Beatles records, and he said, I listen to those songs and I think, clever boy. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> and um, you know, I look at, uh, if I glance at something like Ivan Needle, which, which uh, I wrote when I was um, 28 years old, I'm now 61. I wrote Ivan Needle when I was 28 years old, and I, I glance at it now and again, and I must say, I think, clever boy, that's, that, was, that was pretty damn good. Um, it's... Uh, uh, it's of course it's relative it's a relatively short book it has quite a narrow focus um and in those days uh i i don't think i could have uh, written um something like a world without end or fall of giants which requires a book of that length and scope requires skills that i probably didn't have when i was 28 so i think um i hope i've learned a lot uh, I'm still the same writer. I still have the same 
attitudes. It's still the same kind of thing that seems to me exciting or romantic or scary or sexy. Um, so I don't think I don't think there's a big change, but I think inevitably you acquire skills when you do this kind of thing year after year. Uh, so I hope um, my books are. are uh, I hope the craftsmanship has improved, and I hope I still have some of that youthful feistiness. <laughs> <laughs> now, several of your works, uh, many of them, including Eye of the Needle, have been made into films or television miniseries, and I would also put on that list, at least partially, uh, The Key to Rebecca, Lie Down with Lions on Wings of Angels, and The Pillars of the Earth, which is due to be released in 2010. Why do you think your novels are particularly adaptable to either the big screen or the small screen? Well, my, my work has been adapted for television much more than for the cinema. Uh, and I think that's because um, even, my, even my relatively short books uh, of about 100,000 words are quite heavily plotted and uh, perhaps too heavily plotted to be to be um, trimmed down to a two-hour movie, whereas four hours of television or six hours of television, or in the case of The Pillars of the Earth, eight hours of television, um, is, is, uh, gives the screenwriter a chance to, to benefit from a lot more of the plot that I have devised. So I think television is, uh, has, has um, been, been a better visual vehicle for my work than the movies. Although, of course, writers, writers love to have a Hollywood movie because, you know, you sell a lot of books, whereas the television miniseries doesn't necessarily sell that many books. However, um, I'm not complaining. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, and um, uh, some of the miniseries of my stories have been marvellous. The Pillars of the Earth, which was screened um, this year in uh, July and August in the United States and is rolling out now. It has already been screened in Ireland and it's just um, started in Spain. Uh, it is a terrific adaptation of The Pillars of the Earth with, with a good script by John Peelmeyer, wonderful actors, Ian McShane, Matthew McFadden, Hayley Atwell, Natalia Werner, who's a wonderful German actress, um, and very beautifully directed, very exciting, very colorful, very full of action. And um, people in the United States who watched it have uh, emailed me and said that they've really enjoyed it. How does it feel to watch uh, your characters come to life through an actor's work? And are there times where you've, you've looked at it and you've said, no, they just they went totally off the rails on this one? Well, it's, it's, uh, you, of course the author has mixed feelings about this because I know that the screenwriter is going to deconstruct my novel and rebuild it in a different way. He has to because he has to tell the story in pictures and I tell the story in words and it's very different. So I know that's going to happen and of course I'm, I'm nervous that he won't be as careful as I was to avoid illogicalities or boring bits, lacunae. Mm. Uh, so one is of course terribly nervous. Uh, as it happens, um, the Pillars of the Earth benefited from an excellent script and I didn't have, I didn't even, I read it and I didn't even comment on it. There was nothing to say. It was great. As for the actors, of course, when you see the actor, you immediately think, oh no, he doesn't look like that. Uh, because you, every reader 
ev the author, like every reader, has a picture of of what the character looks like, and it's never that actor, the actor they happen to choose. And sometimes uh, it's almost perverse. You know, Prior Philip in The Pillars of the Earth is, is uh, a fairly slight man. He's not a man of great physical stature. And he's played by Matthew McFadden, who's six foot five and, and extremely handsome. And uh, <laughs> that was a kind of, uh, uh, I was taken aback. But what happens with a good actor is that that feeling lasts a very short time. After about 10 seconds, <laughs> you uh, forget the picture that you originally had of the character, and the actor's face becomes the face of the character for readers and for the author. A good actor can do that in a very short time indeed. Now, I was surprised to learn that The Pillars of the Earth was even adapted into a board game that was released 2007-2008. Uh, Does it surprise you the full range of ways that people like to experience and enjoy your stories? Um, well, I'm very flattered by it. I mean, I think if, uh, you know, if, uh, if my story, I'm very flattered if my stories survive translation, for example. I think that's, I take that as a compliment to the underlying strength of the story. And if it makes a good movie or miniseries, the same thing. They, there was a very strong story there that survived adaptation to another medium. I'm not sure I think that about a board game. I think the, the board game uh, is really, uh, I mean, it's a good board game. I played it before I sanctioned the whole, um, the whole thing and enjoyed it very much. But it's, it's essentially using a brand name. It's taking a brand name from literature and, as it were, sticking it onto a box containing something completely different. <laughs> um, but there are, there are, there are many um, thousands of, of people who've enjoyed the book and have bought the board game and, and have uh, enjoyed the board game. So, so uh, who am I to complain? <laughs> now, if I could just shift gears a little bit, uh, I want to talk about your life outside of being a novelist, per se. And over the years, you've become deeply involved in advocacy for literacy, uh, supporting London organizations that are focused on the arts and the writing can you talk a little bit about your passion for those subjects and, and, and what inspires you to continue that? Well, I think it's a natural thing for a writer. You know, somebody who can't read, um, it, it, it strikes me as tragic that somebody can't read. Um, not just because he can't, that, you know, of, co of course he or she won't be a customer, but that's not really the reason. It's, it's, it's much more that I personally have had such pleasure all my life from books and particularly from novels. I, I, learned, I was able to read before I went to school. My mother taught me to read when I was four years old, and I loved um, stories then, and, um, and I love them nonetheless now. So, so the, the, the idea that there are people who actually can't read and can't have that pleasure seems tragic to me. And so I've been involved with various charities and with government projects. In when um, the Tony Blair government was elected, uh, we we uh, announced a national year of reading, and I was I was chair of that. And we we got the message across. I think we managed quite effectively to get the message across that it's important to read for pleasure because that increases your skills, just as it's important to do some sport and keep your body fit. It's important to read for pleasure and keep your literacy skills uh, in, 
in uh, good order. Mm. And we got that message across, I think, quite effectively. Mm. I've also, for 10 years, I was president of a charity called Dyslexia Action, which helps dyslexic children. There are many children in English-speaking countries. There are many children uh, who have a particular difficulty in learning to read, and we call it dyslexia. We don't understand where it comes from, but we know how to treat it. We do know how to teach dyslexic children and adults how to read and write. And the charity uh, raises money to do this, to employ the experts who know how to teach dyslexic children to read and write. And um, so for, I was very happy to, to um, be the figurehead for that charity for 10 years. Uh, I think it's... Um, it, it, it makes a social difference, too. I mean, it's not just about reading for pleasure. People who have difficulty reading and writing are terribly disadvantaged in modern society. Fifty years ago, uh, when, you know, when I was at school, many of my contemporaries left school at the age of 15, and... Um, the day after, you know, the day after, on their 15th birthday, instead of coming to school, they would go to the gate of the local factory and um, would get a job, and many of them would work at that factory for the rest of their lives. That sort of world has disappeared. There are, there's hardly any work you can get in Western society, in Europe or North America, that doesn't require you to do at least some reading and writing. And so it's a terrible disadvantage for people if they have great difficulties reading and writing. Now, before there was Ken Follett, the internationally best-selling author, there was Ken Follett, the journalist. Uh, and I think I have to ask the obligatory question about what kind of advice or insight could you give to aspiring fiction writers who might be following different career paths right now? Well, I had... I don't know whether this applies to anybody else, but I had to learn to be a perfectionist. When I began, I thought, well, what, what people enjoy... I started out writing thrillers. I thought, what people enjoy are the exciting scenes, the chases, the fights, and the love scenes. And so I concentrated on those things, and I thought to myself, the rest doesn't really matter. I, you don't have to worry too much about the characters and the landscape and all that sort of thing. Just focus on what excites people. And that was a terrible mistake, of course. Um, I had to learn that uh, an action scene is no good unless the reader cares about the people in it. So, so even if you're going to write a book that's going to focus on action scenes, you still have to create characters with whom the reader will identify and probably characters that the reader will hate, but you've got to create characters and you've got to set whatever is going to happen has got to be set in a realistic landscape that you're going to have to describe with all the resources at your disposal for description. We know that, you know, you may not want to write a book that's praised for its descriptive prose, but you've but you've still got to do the descriptive prose, otherwise the reader will have the feeling that the whole thing is a bit flimsy and a bit and incompletely imagined. So what I had to learn is that every aspect of the novel required my utmost ability, all of what I possessed in terms of, of intellect and imagination and determination. Uh, and, you know, the, the persistence to rewrite and so on. Every, every aspect of the novel required every ounce of my abilities, and even then, it might only be halfway good. 
Now, before I let you go, uh, I was also interested to learn that you have a passion for music, and particularly the bass guitar, which you play in your band, Damn Right I Got the Blues. Uh, is there a recording contract in your future? No. <laughs> no, I don't think so. The band consists of uh, people who all have careers in some field other than music, and uh, nobody wants to be in, none of us wants to be in show business. We do it uh, just for fun. Uh, we 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 play in a rehearsal studio every Monday night, and then five or six times a year, we play uh, at uh, at, a, at a venue or at a, at a at a dance or at a wedding or at a birthday party. <laughs> uh, usually for our, for our friends, but sometimes for larger audiences. And uh, I I don't anticipate ever. Uh, making any money, I don't want to make any money out of it. It would that would that would put responsibility on my <laughs> head that I don't want. Uh, at the moment, if I happen to play a bum note, um, nobody can nobody can complain. They can't say we paid you a thousand pounds to to play at our party and you played a bum note. <laughs> if I play a bum note uh, uh, and somebody complains, I say, well, you're not paying me. What do you expect? <laughs> <laughs> uh, who who are your musical influences? Well. It started as a blues band, and uh, the blues, uh, I like all kinds of music. I love classical music and so on, but the music that moves me the most is the blues. Uh, it's funny, isn't it, because there's, um, uh, it's, in some ways, the blues is more appreciated in Europe than it is uh, in, its, in its home country. Uh, the, um, you know, when Willie Dixon and Little Walter and Muddy Waters uh, the, f the first time they ever got paid any real money was when they came to Europe for, in the 60s for what was called the American Folk Blues Festival. They were paid about ten times as much as they'd ever been paid before by all these um, long-haired European schoolboys. And uh, uh, it's, there's, a, there's a long tradition of um, Europeans loving the blues. And, of course, some, we have produced some of the best exponents of blues guitar. Eric Clapton, for example. Uh, but um, so it's the blues that I love. The band has become a bit of bit more. Uh, 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 it plays a wider range of music now. We've been together for a long time, and, and we go through changes. We have a singer. We've in the last few years, we've had a singer who loves soul music. So we now play some of that kind of music because she likes it so much. <laughs> uh, but the main thing is, you know, it's we love we love we love the music, and then when we play in public, we love to see people dance. Well, Ken Follett, uh, thank you so very much for your time today. Uh, very much appreciate it. And You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And the new book, of course, Fall of Giants, once again in bookstores September 28th, and we look forward to hearing you talk about that at the National Book Festival. That's once again September 25th, 2010, on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. From the Library of Congress, this is Matt Raymond. Thank you so much for listening.